Well, Luke, thanks for leading that song. I'd never heard that one before. I appreciate that. Boy, it kind of just punches you right in the right in the feels. Uh, got a couple things I want to say to you. Of course, this is the last night. Let me get my wires here tucked away and so I can focus on what I'm doing. This is the last night. I have really, really looked forward to this opportunity. I've been so, so excited about it. Um, but I want to make a couple comments before we get started because when I'm done, I'm going, I promise I'm going to be done. I'm not going to make any comments after the service, after the last song, before the prayer, after the prayer. When I'm done, I'm done. That's my promise. So I've got a comment or two uh, before we actually get started on the work right now. Um, I, uh, I, I, as Glenn already mentioned, I came to Somerset a number of years ago. Uh, it, it's funny, my, my, my daughters are older than I was when I came to Somerset and stayed with so many of you. Um, I, I, I have been preaching now longer than I had been alive when I came and stayed with some of you. Um, I wrote some of these things down so I can I can remember what I wanted to say. So just just in, indulge me for just just a moment or two. Um, I only stayed with you three months, but but when you're young, time seems to go a whole lot slower than it does as you get older. And in three months, what what I mean to say is that you can live a lot of life in a short amount of time when you're young like that. And what I'm trying to communicate is that, that you've made an impression on me. You, 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 you made a deep impression on me, and I hadn't forgot that through the years. You've been meaningful to me uh, uh, all, all, all these years. So many of you here, so many of those that are still there at Southside, um, uh, I, I've remembered you through the years. And, I've, and I, I specifically want to tell you that, that, I, that I have prayed for, I've prayed for you, um, I have I've prayed for you as a church, but I have prayed for many of you individually and as your families, um, and and I'm going to continue to do that. And I I really appreciate these few additional days that I've had to spend with you this week. You've refreshed you've refreshed me. You've refreshed my spirit, and I so I've so treasured this, and I'm going to continue to treasure it. You've encouraged me. Um, I hope I really do. I hope. There's so much that I'd like to tell you about the book of Matthew, and these are just a couple of the sermons. But I hope what, what if I can communicate anything to you, I hope it is to instill some passion in you to, 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 to read Matthew. And, and it's not just Matthew. I mean, these kind of treasures are all through the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelations. These treasures are to be found. And so I hope if I've done anything for you this week, it is to encourage you to open the Bible and hear what God has to say because I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, I'm thoroughly convinced that it will transform your lives. Um, what we're going to talk about here tonight, I'll, I'll tell you, it has transformed my life. It has changed the way that I think about who I am, what I do, and the people that I work with. I want to just offer a couple other things. Uh, I want to tell you, uh, I want to tell you that I love you, uh, Luke. I want to tell you that I love you. I admire you. I've gotten to spend just a couple afternoons with him, and I appreciate, I appreciate his wisdom, Luke. I appreciate your wisdom. I admire it. 
uh, I'm so thankful that you've been able to spend time around good men that have encouraged you and advised you well and and I really do pray that that you your family will be blessed and the church here will be blessed by you um, Glenn and Kathy thank you so very much for letting me stay with you uh, thank you for your company this week all of you that had me out to, uh, to dinner with you and allowed me to visit with you I appreciate your company those of you that I visited with back in the foyer, I love you. I appreciate your company. I, I, you, you have truly encouraged me. Thank you so very much. Um, may God bless you, and may God bless this church, and may you prosper just as your soul prospers. And I, I just want um, one, 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 one last re two, two last requests. Number one... Um, Please continue to support me. I appreciate that. <laughs> but to, and most of all, pray for me. I, I really do, I really do covet your prayers. I know, I know that God hears prayers. I've seen Him work through the prayers of other people, and I really do cherish your prayers. Please pray for me. Um, well, let's get to work. Go to the book of Matthew, if you will. We've been talking about Matthew the last couple of nights. We're going to continue to do that this evening as well. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20 in just a moment. Um, we have been on a journey. Uh, and if you have gone through the book of Matthew, you'll see this. I'm, I'm going to try to flesh this out real quickly as we get started tonight. Uh, but we have been on a journey. If you've gotten to chapter 20, you've been on a journey. And what Matthew begins with is this matter of belief. We talked about that a little bit on Sunday uh, evening. This, this idea of the, 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 the connection of Jesus to, 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 to Moses and his identity. And, and you see that. As you go down through the book of Matthew, some of these things we didn't really highlight, uh, but I want to share a couple of them with you tonight. Jesus calms the storm with the disciples, and they begin to ponder, what sort of man is this? They are his disciples, by the way. This isn't some stranger that they've just met. They're convinced enough to leave everything behind and follow this guy, but when Jesus calms the storm, they're still flabbergasted, and they say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the, 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 the waves obey his voice? And so they've been thinking about these things, and we're thinking about them with, we, we are thinking about it with them if we have been on this journey. We, we are seeing things through Matthew's eyes. And so we are pondering this same question about Jesus. Uh, Jesus casts out the legion of demons there in Matthew chapter 8, in verse 28 and, and forward. Uh, and again, we wonder about we wonder about his ability to command even the devils, and just just it, isn't this? Think about that scene for just a moment. Jesus is a one man army. He has cast out. He has confronted and defeated with just his voice, just the authority of his words. He has defeated an army of devils. Jesus is a one man army. What sort of man is this? Jesus is able to forgive sins. The opening of chapter 9. John's question that we talked about last night. Are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? We've been on this journey with Matthew. We've been looking through Matthew's eyes. The Pharisees, re, uh, the, the Pharisees resistance to Jesus. And we didn't have time to talk about this, but I want to just 
briefly go over this with you. If you look at chapter 12, if you look at chapter 12, I'm going to highlight this for you real quickly. But if you look at Matthew chapter 12, I, I, I promise if you read down through chapter 12 and you'll think about this conversation back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus, this is the way people argue with you. This is the way people will argue. Religious arguments will go this way. And so you have the reaction of the Pharisees. And in the first few verses, they unjustly accuse Jesus. Have you ever been in a religious argument with somebody, a religious debate with somebody, a religious discussion with somebody, and they unfairly accuse you? I was telling you the other night that I'd spoke to a woman here not too long ago, and she was divorced now twice. Neither of her husbands had cheated on her, but she's divorced now twice, and she's wanting to marry somebody else now. And she immediately responds when I tell her, I don't think you have a right to remarry. You're the kind of minister, you're the kind of preacher, you're the kind of Church of Christ person that would keep women uh, in abusive relationships unfairly accused and that's what the Pharisees do with Jesus they unfairly accuse him beginning around verse 9 they they uh, uh, they're, they're frustrated and so they try to trap Jesus in something that he says uh, around verse 22 uh, they're desperate and so they just begin spouting random craziness uh, I don't think that they actually believe that Jesus is casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. It's just they don't know what else to say, and so they just say something. Have you been in a religious discussion with somebody? Maybe not even a religious discussion with somebody. Any kind of discussion with somebody, and they don't know how to answer what you're saying, and so they just spout random nonsense. That's what they're doing. And Jesus at this moment almost gives them a verbal backhand. He warns them that everything that they say, every word that proceeds from their mouth, God will hold them accountable for it. And so now they feign, they feign interest once again. Verse 38, now that they've recomposed themselves, they feign some interest in reason. And finally, at the end of the chapter, Jesus offers a second great invitation like we talked about last night. Read down through chapter 12. That interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, I think it's eye-opening in the way that we will interact in our conversations with people in the future. Chapter 13, of course, then are these parables and uh, the, the, the reactions of the Pharisees are explained through these parables. And ultimately then in chapter 16 is Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've been on this journey of who Jesus is. And then like on Sunday night, we talked about not just belief in Jesus as the man, but also belief in God's method and specifically the cross. Jesus foretells his own death when Peter confesses him to be the Christ. And then Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship, that every disciple must, like Jesus, take up their cross and follow him. We are to be like Christ. We are his disciples. Jesus took up his cross. We take up our cross as well. And we talked about some of the kind, the kind of crosses that somebody might, that somebody might carry. Um, uh, we talked about this, that the disciples weren't able to cast out the, the, the demons because of the lack of their faith. They weren't following the right method. They, they hadn't put those things into practice consistently. And, uh, consistently. and so tonight, tonight, we've seen Jesus' identity. We believe in Jesus, the man. We've talked about God's method. Take up your cross. 
we're, we're going to trust. I'm going to go God's way. Tonight, will we also believe Jesus' definition of commitment and greatness? I know every one of you here, because you're here on a Wednesday night, you are committed to Jesus, right? We, believe, we are committed to Jesus. We believe in Jesus. I'm, 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 I'm on board with this business of taking up the cross, even if I don't know exactly what that cross is right now, but I'm going to go wherever Jesus goes. What does it mean to truly be committed to Jesus? To, to, to be a great disciple. James and John want to be great disciples. They want to be great disciples. And I have to put myself in their shoes. I don't think that this is, is, I don't think that there's any malicious intent behind their request. In Matthew chapter 18, you'll read this with me if you will. Matthew chapter, nine, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20 and beginning in verse 20. Matthew chapter 20 and beginning in verse 20. Uh, it's interesting that Matthew brings up the brother's mother who comes, the mother comes. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. Why do you suppose mom comes? Because it's hard to say no to a mom. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. Notice that it's the mom that comes, but the disciples are asking the question because Jesus responds to them, and they answer, Yes, we are able to drink the cup that you are going to drink. Verse 23, And he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those who for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That idea of lording it over someone, it's just making sure everybody knows who's top dog. Make sure everybody knows who's the, who is the boss. That's the idea of lording it over someone. Everybody in the world knows who's in charge right now. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man, the greatest of all, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, a ransom for many. Now, notice that the other disciples are angry with James and John because they ask this question, and I have to wonder, maybe they're angry with James and John simply because they didn't think to ask first. You know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that the job was open. If I'd known the job was open for, for grabs, I would have called dibs already. And so they're mad at James and John, perhaps just because they asked first and the other disciples didn't think about it. But Jesus takes this opportunity to discuss this matter of greatness. The disciples are often arguing about who's the most important, who's the greatest. Over in Matthew chapter 18, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, These other verses are... uh, I'm going to skip over them. I'll pick up 22 in just a moment. But if you look there at Matthew chapter 18, um, look down at verse 6. Jesus refers to little ones. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble... Uh, He uses that same language again in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Uh, Again, down in verse 14, he uses that same phrase. So it, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven, but the one. uh, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Notice the language. This repeated language: little ones, little ones, little ones. Now back up to the beginning of the chapter once again. They are arguing about who is the greatest. Who's the most important? Who's the top disciple? And Jesus calls to himself a child, a literal little one. He calls a child to himself and says, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes this verse is used to argue about whether children are born in sin or not. Uh, Children are born innocent. They are not guilty of sin. They have not committed sin, and they are not guilty of Adam's sin. But again, that's not what this verse is talking about. Being converted and becoming like little children, he's not talking about becoming innocent like children. Um, Maybe you remember hearing something like this growing up. I remember hearing phrases like this from older parents or from older people that children are better seen than heard. And I think that's the culture in which Jesus is living and Jesus is discussing this. These little ones, these children, they're not important. They're unnoticed. Nobody pays attention to them. Nobody cares what they think. Nobody cares what they have to say. Nobody cares what's on their mind. Really, nobody cares what their hopes, dreams, and ambitions are. They really don't matter a whole lot. Jesus says, unless you are converted to become like one of these, what do you think he means by that? Not in size, not in stature, And I don't think the point is about sinlessness or innocence of sin. I don't think that's the point that he's making here. What do you think he means when he says, unless you are converted and become like one of these little ones or like one of these children, what does that mean? You don't matter unless the world sees you that way. You have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with being nobody in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that you will be. You just have to be okay with that. I think that's what Jesus is driving at. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Chapter 22, if you look at chapter 22, what, are the, what is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing here in Matthew chapter 22? When again, they are arguing about who is the greatest. Here's a second occasion. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 24. No, I'm sorry, not Matthew, Luke. I was going to say, that's, that, that, that's, that's, that's definitely the wrong chapter. Luke chapter 22. What has Jesus just talked about? What has Jesus just talked about with the disciples here in Luke chapter 22, verse 24? That's where they argue about it, but just back up a verse or two. Just back up a verse or two. 
He has just instituted the Lord's Supper. Here they are this last evening together. They're, they're eating this Passover meal. Then Jesus takes bread and Jesus takes the fruit of the vine. And he, he talks about his own death, his own self-sacrifice for these very men. And the next thing that they're doing is arguing about who's most important. I mean, that, doesn't that drive the point home? What did Jesus come to do? He came to serve. He came to serve. Each of these 12 men, however, would have had a reason to feel that they deserve the title of greatest. Now think about that for just a moment. What, what evidence could they offer? What evidence could they offer? Let's just play this for a moment. Play this out. Put yourself in the shoes of one of these, these disciples for a minute. How, how would they argue that they were most important? Every one of them is arguing about this. How would they argue? Think about somebody like Andrew for a moment. What is Andrew's claim to fame? What does he have to argue that he's the greatest of all the other, 12, uh, of all the other apostles, that he should be the greatest? What, what, what is he going to argue? Well, maybe he argues from the simple position of original status. He's the OG of the apostles. He and John, right? If nothing else, he's the one who brings Peter. If it wasn't for Andrew, Peter wouldn't know anything about Jesus. I don't know that's what he said, but if I was Andrew, I might try to make that case. I was one of the first. I'm the original disciple. Sometimes we do that with churches, right? This is, I've, I've been here the longest, or this is my family's church. You know, my, my great-grandpappy was the one who built this building. Sometimes we play that game. Of course, maybe, maybe Peter, James, and John, they could argue, and we might agree with them the most, that they had been singled out by Jesus, just like all the twelve had been singled out from the multitude. Well, these three, if I was one of them, I might argue that, that Jesus has singled us out specifically. Uh, we've gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. We've seen things that the rest of you haven't seen. We've heard Jesus talk about things that, that you haven't heard. We've, we've had special information given to us, and so maybe they'd argue that they're greatest because of that. What do you think about Judas? What would Judas say? Now, now think about, remember Judas. Judas is the betrayer, but none of the disciples know that he's the betrayer. What would Judas say that would give him reason to think he deserves to be the greatest of the apostles? It's real simple. It's real simple. And again, we play this same game. He had the money. Everybody knows that whoever writes the checks is most important. Whoever has the bank account, they're the most important. It's not true. But oftentimes, that's the way that we think. That's the way that we function. These men are no different than we are. We are no, no different than they were. And so Jesus talks to them finally then about greatness and what true commitment really is. The disciples say, Jesus, we have left everything for you. Back up to chapter 19. Back in chapter 19. You remember on Sunday night when we talked about taking up your cross Matthew chapter 19, of course, is always referred to when we talk about divorce and remarriage. But the story right after that is the rich young ruler. 
Now notice this. In verse 27, the disciples say, Behold, we have left everything. Why is that significant here? Well, in the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus says in verse 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell everything. Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The disciples are responding. Peter is responding to Jesus when this man walks away sorrowful. Peter says, Jesus, we've done that very thing. We believe in you. We are committed to you. And we have left everything to follow you. Think about these men. Matthew has left the income of a tax collector. That is a lucrative position. Even if he's doing this honestly, this is a lucrative position that he's in. He has left a good and stable income. He's left that behind to follow Jesus. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they've left their fishing business and their father as well. And the other disciples likewise, they have all left everything to follow Jesus. I'll tell you, I want to think that I am committed to Jesus in that way, but following Him has not really cost me all that much. Well, I, I say that, but let, 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 me, let me tweak that a little bit. Uh, it certainly has not cost me in the way that it's cost these disciples, that they've left everything. I had a friend who wanted to go into preaching, and he, uh, he's about my age, and he asked me what I thought about that, and I thought that would be fine if he wanted to do that. It did look, from my vantage point, it did look providentially like God was moving him in that direction. But when we talked on the phone about, about what his plans were and what he'd like to do, I do remember telling him that, uh, that preaching has been the very best thing for me and for my family. I can't hardly imagine doing anything else now. But it has also been the worst thing for my family. And you just need to understand that it's going to cost you something. Being a disciple, not just a preacher, but being a disciple is going to cost. It costs these men everything. It's going to cost you something. Not only that, the disciples even say, Jesus, we are willing to die with you. Not only will we give up our stuff, we'll give up our lives for you. And I have no reason to, to doubt them. I have no reason to doubt their sincerity. Matt, look, look at this, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Do you think that James and John, when they say yes, they understand what Jesus is asking them to do? When Jesus says to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Do you think that they understand what he's talking about? I don't think so. But here it is. It doesn't matter. That's the level of their commitment. It doesn't matter. I think their attitude is, Jesus, I don't care what you're drinking. 
Coke Zero, Kool-Aid, I don't, cyanide, it doesn't matter. If you take the first drink, Jesus, I'll take the second swig. It doesn't matter what you drink. It doesn't matter if it's not a drink at all, if it's something else. I don't care what it is, Jesus. If you're going there, I'll go with you. That's what they're saying. Jesus, I'm committed to your cause. Whatever you do, Jesus, I'll do it with you. That's what they're saying. They're not just looking for a title. They're not just looking to be named lieutenants. They're not looking for a title. They're not simply looking for prestige. They're saying, Jesus, we are so committed to your cause that if you need anything done, whatever it is, I don't even care what it is, you just name it, you can count on me, I'll take care of it. I'll make sure it's done. That's their commitment. And again, I don't think that there's any reason that we ought to read this story, read this event, read what's happening here, read their words, and think there's any kind of uh, suspicious intent behind it. They're not looking for a title. They're not looking just to get a big name. They're committed to Jesus' cause. Whatever you want us to do, Jesus, if you want us to climb mountains, we'll climb mountains. If you want us to cross the Sea of Galilee and not even use a boat, guess what? I've got my bathing suit on. I'm ready to go. Whatever you want us to do, Jesus, that's what we'll do. And all of the disciples are saying the same thing. In Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 26, this, this is beautiful. We know, we know how things go with Peter, but just notice what's said here. This is Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33. Matthew 26 and verse 33. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, I, we know what happens. Jesus even explains this to Peter in the moment. But do you think he's just mouthing words? If, if I'm Peter, if, wouldn't you say the same thing? Aren't you willing to go anywhere? Have you never sang the song, Anywhere with Jesus I can safely go? Are you just mouthing words? Should I be suspicious of you? Should you be suspicious of me? Should I doubt your level of commitment? I don't doubt their commitment. They have demonstrated they are on Jesus' side. They believe in Him. And they have, in fact, already made a huge sacrifice. They have left everything to follow Jesus. And so when Peter says, Jesus, I'm ready not only to go to prison, but I'm ready to die with you. I believe Him. I believe Him. Now, I, I do know that in the heat of the moment, he gets scared. But I believe his sincerity here. And, and then notice verse 35. All the disciples said the same thing too. Every one of them is committed to Jesus. They're not just mouthing words. They really mean this. And they have already demonstrated it in having left everything already to follow him. There, there are other verses here that we could, we could look at. I, I want to move on. Listen, I, I want to do big things for Jesus too. Don't you? We, we want to do big things for Jesus. Jesus, I love you. I'm committed to you. Wherever you send me, I will go. 
ever sing that song? Uh, Luke was asking me about songs, and I couldn't think of any songs. I'm thinking of a song right now. Footprints of Jesus. If they lead through temples holy, preaching the word, right? Following the footsteps of Jesus. What's the next part? Or in homes of the poor and lowly, preaching the word. I want to do great things for Jesus. I want to do great things for the Lord. When I read this, when I read this about the disciples and they're arguing about who's the greatest, listen, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Because, listen, I'm prideful just like they're prideful. I'm prideful and I'm ambitious just as they are. And confessing that to you tonight, it's not a shame to me. I don't want to fall prey to those temptations, but admitting that they are genuine temptations is no shame. I'll tell you what the shame is. The shame is denying that those things could even be possibly a temptation to me. Years ago, and I have looked, I have looked, and I've looked, and I've looked. I've got all these old religious periodicals, these old religious journals, these monthlies that would come out. I've got years of them uh, back home, and I have looked through them, and I just cannot find this article anymore. Uh, but it was while I was um, probably in the early 2000s. I was living in Nicholasville, mid-2000s, somewhere around there. Uh, but I remember reading in one of these journals, one, one of the months, and like I said, I can't find it anymore. I wish that I could, not that I'd tell you who it was written by, but, but just so that I could reread the article. But, uh, but was published a preacher who was making this confession that, that he, he believed, like himself, that a number of preachers desired to be important. They desired to be well-known and well-regarded. The next month, in that same journal, one of the editors wrote in and commented on this. And the only reason I remember it is because I actually sent a letter to that first guy telling him how much I appreciated his honesty because I think he was right. Most of us preachers are tempted with ambition. But the editor wrote in, and said that he thought that the, uh, that the original author had maligned his fellow preachers. Uh, and he did not believe that most preachers were tempted by such things. Now, I'm not going to say that that man's being dishonest. I'm not saying that he's dishonest. But I did wonder if maybe this big name preacher that wrote back in and said that he doesn't think that that's a temptation. I just have wondered sometimes if he's such a well-known guy that he it doesn't. He's been on top for so long he doesn't know what it's like to look up. Yeah. Again, it's not a shame for me to tell you that I'm tempted. The shame is in denying that we can be tempted while we are being. These men wrestled with greatness. Who's the most important? People today aren't any different than they have ever been. 
we face those same kinds of temptations that people in the past have. Listen, when I was a young man, I thought, oh, I'm I remember going to a debate up in Indianapolis with my dad. And I've gone to some in Louisville and down in Bowling Green when I was younger. And I remember watching those guys. And they had all the answers. At least it seemed like they had all the answers. And, and, I, I, and I just I wanted someday to be like that. I wanted to be able to just know the answer. And no matter what the question was, I could just answer it. I wanted to be like that. And I knew that if I had all the answers, then I would be brave and I could charge out into the world. And I'd convert the whole wide world because I had all the answers. <laughs> I wanted to be somebody great. I thought I'd, I'd be great in that way. I once thought that great preachers were in great big churches or that great preachers held lots of gospel meetings. You know what I'm tempted to think now? Uh, I remember somebody telling me this past week that uh, the church where, where he is working, uh, that they, they've been doing really well. They've been growing. And they had 70 people on Sunday. 70 people. I remember when that church started. And they've got 70 people now. And I was tempted to say, we had seven because you know what that is? It's not really a humble brag, but it's kind of the opposite, but still bragging, right? Because great preachers aren't in great big places. Great preachers, the best, the most sincere, are in really small places. Have you ever read anything by C.S. Lewis? Maybe you've read some of his Narnia uh, if, if you've read any of the other stuff, maybe you've read Mere Christianity. And that's, that's good. But I'm convinced that Lewis is a genius. And it's not his Narnia, and it's not, it's not uh, the Mere Christianity. It's the Screwtape Letters. Have any of you read that? The Screwtape Letters. I've got a little passage I want to read to you about this. Let me set this up for you. The screw tape letters, it's not very long, like 100 pages. And they are, they are letters. It is an uncle writing to his nephew. They just happen to be demons. And he pictures, Lewis pictures hell like a bureaucracy, like, like, a, like a modern day company. And so you have, you have the, the chief demon who is interested in his nephew doing well. And so he writes to his nephew, a fellow demon, he writes to his nephew, just, just beginning the job, just getting started, and he's giving him pointers on how to tempt people. I'm, I'm telling you, Lewis is a genius. He has, he must have spent hours and hours and hours contemplating human nature. I used to think that important, great, powerful preachers were in big churches. But I'm in a small church, and so big and important and powerful preachers are in small churches. Look at what Lewis says. So Screwtape writes to his nephew and he says, I see only, thing, I see only one thing to do at the moment. You're patient. We're the patients. 
Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. That is genius insight. All virtue is less formidable once the man is aware that he has them. But this is particularly true of humility. Catch him, catch him at a moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger, try to smother this new form of pride. Make him proud of his attempt. And so on. Through as many stages as you please, but don't try this too long for fear you'll awake his sense of humor and proportion, and in which case, he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. I'm telling you, read the screw tape letters. Lewis knows something about human nature. Peter, James, Judas, the disciples of Jesus, they argued about who was the greatest. They're not unique. We're all tempted in the same way. And I'll tell you what, the pride of life, the pride of life, it was in the garden. It was in the wilderness with Jesus. John writes about it in his first epistle. And it is present with us today. The desire to be great. Not simply out of selfishness. I believe that the apostles truly are committed to Jesus. Jesus, we want to be great. We want to do great things for you. I want to do big things for you. And they mean that sincerely. Many of us feel that way individually and as congregations. We want to do things. We want to shake the world for heaven. But Jesus' point is that the greatest are those people that serve the most unimportant. Let me repeat that. Jesus' point is that the greatest disciples are those who serve the most unimportant. Go back to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and now verse 25 once again. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. The people who lead the biggest army are the most powerful generals. The people that have the most people listen to them are the best speakers. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's a principle here. The way that we treat Jesus is the, or I'm sorry, the way that we treat Jesus' people is the way that we treat Jesus. 
And we see this in a number of places, right? We can go to Matthew chapter 25 with the judgment scene. Um, when did we see you hungry? Where, when did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked or, or, or in prison? When did we care for you? Or when did we fail to care for you, Jesus? If it was you, I would definitely have done it. And Jesus' response is, to the extent that you did or did not do so, to the least of these brothers of mine you have or have not done so for me. The way that we treat Jesus' people is the way that we treat Jesus. And there are a couple other verses to go along with that. So let me finish with this. You've thought about it all night, right? Who is it? Who is it that is going to sit on Jesus' left and on Jesus' right? There's only two places, right? So who gets the top spots? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I can tell you who I doubt, who I doubt will have them. May, you know, may, maybe, it would, maybe it's for Peter and Paul. right? May, maybe it's for Peter and Paul. Maybe it is for James and John. They're the ones that ask. Maybe it is for James and John. James is the first apostle who is martyred, and John is the last of the apostles to be alive. And so they kind of serve as bookends, so maybe they are the ones who sit on his left and on his right. I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure. And again, I, 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 I confess to you, I don't know. But if I was to guess, if I was to guess, I'm pretty confident that it is none of us preachers either alive today or have ever been alive or ever will live until Jesus is coming. I don't believe that it's going to be a preacher that sits on Jesus' left and Jesus' right. I don't think it's going to be a preacher. I don't think it's going to be an author of Bible class material. I don't think it's going to be an editor of some periodical or some magazine, some religious journal. I don't think it's going to be any of those. I don't think it's going to be a, a, a debater of the age. I don't think it's going to be that. Probably not going to be even an elder. It's probably not going to be an elder in the church. I don't, it may not even be a man. You know, if I had to guess from the things that we've talked about tonight, if I had to guess who's going to sit on the left and on the right, and again, it's just my guess, but if I had to guess, it's probably two little old unnamed women that we've never heard of that most of the world, the, the world certainly has never heard of, but most of the church has never heard their names. It's probably two little old unnamed widow, or old, old uh, unnamed women whose, com whose commitment is attested to by so many other unnamed disciples. The greatest among you shall be servant of all. Who's going to sit on the left and right? If I had to guess, it's probably somebody we've never heard of who has served countless others that we have never heard of and maybe more than that, that were so far below us that we would never have noticed them to begin with. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If there is anyone here tonight that sees Jesus for the Savior that He is, we invite you to come.
repenting of all the sins of your past, to be baptized so that all of those sins are washed away in Jesus' blood, and to follow him wherever he goes. Come while we stand and sing.